Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Welcome along everyone to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters and today I'm joined by Mike Donio. Welcome along, Mike. Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, Mike, you reached out to me a few months ago because you had a few things that you wanted to discuss. And um, I know that you've got a background in science and you've been a scientist for many, many years and you've got a diverse range or a diverse background in the science, in the field of science and research. Um, and yeah, I thought it was interesting that you approached me and you wanted to sort of share your perspectives on a few things that are going on and, um, yeah, get out there and, and share maybe a bit of a different view or a different take on things. And I think that's very honorable of you. So thank you for, for taking the opportunity and the time to come and speak with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to to speak out and hopefully shed some light on some of the things that are going on in, in science and um, hopefully perhaps illuminate um, some of your audience to perhaps some interesting things they may not be aware of. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. And before we get into the juicy bits today, would you like to give a bit of a background on what you do, your education and what your experiences have been over the last several years? Yeah, sure. So um, I have been a scientist for about 20 years and the, the great majority of that has been in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, but before that, so I got my degree in my bachelor's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology, and then I have a master's in biotechnology. Um, and like I said, I spent a lot of time in the in industry and I've worked across, you know, pr a pretty good spectrum of drug development um, from early stage drug discovery all the way through to preclinical um, activities to enable clinical trials. Um, I've worked at in big pharma for very big companies and I've worked in biotech for very small startup companies. So kind of a spectrum there as well. And throughout my career, I've had the ability to learn to be exposed to a lot of different scientific disciplines. So virology, um, neurobiology, cancer, oncology. Um, so I've got quite a, quite a diverse background and um, yeah, I've been doing it for a, for a long time. Um, and I guess currently I happen to be a former scientist as I was, um, let go from my most recent position for not, um, taking a COVID vaccine. Um, and yeah, I don't <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, certainly something that's affecting a lot of people and not even just the, the vaccination thing it's 
also, I guess, a lot of people in the area of science and medicine, particularly over the last two years, have realized that everything's not quite what it seems, right? Exactly. Right, right. And, I, you know, and probably even more so than what most people realize, uh, especially if you've been on the inside at all and you kind of ha- have eyes to really see what's, what's going on and really how much we're being played with some of this stuff. Because I guess when people hear something on the news or on the radio or on TV and it's touted as science, we just tend to believe it as it's a hard, undeniable fact and you cannot challenge it. And that's, it's unfortunate that that seems to be the way that science is going these days because that's never the way that science was in the past and it's never the way that science was from its inception because science the very definition of it is to question things and is to challenge and there is never an answer there's never an end point is there you're always trying to prove yourself wrong rather than saying actually no we're right you can't question this anymore that's not what science is about is it right absolutely not and and that that is exactly the perspective that i'm coming from and where what I, or the way that I learned it was, it's an iterative process, right? You put the re in research. It should always be a, a series of questioning, evaluation, utilizing the scientific method. And then you go back and you say, did this work out the way I thought it did? If not, you come up with another hypothesis, adjust things and go right back into more questioning, more testing. It's not something where you do something and you hit an endpoint and ah, okay, we're done, you know, or, you know, that this theory is true and everything else is, we're just not going to worry about that. You know, it, it, there should be a really high bar when you're talking about is, do we, what do we believe or what do we not believe or, and you should really be able to, to question pretty much anything, but obviously that's not the case anymore. Yeah, and I think it's amazing that scientists like yourself are starting to ask questions because prior to this, I'm not sure if there were really that many scientists trying to challenge the status quo. Um, But I've certainly noticed, and maybe you have too, since, or I don't know, the start of 2020 when this pandemic first began, I think people realise that things aren't, really what they seem on the surface. And when you start digging a little bit deeper into some of these scientific concepts and theories or facts, as they like to um, call them, there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of uncertainties. And when you go digging and you realize that and you start asking questions, you're labeled as a crazy person and a conspiracy theorist. Ah, Of course, of course. Yeah. How dare you for having the audacity to to question anything that we've already said is absolutely unequivocally true and established dogma, right? You, you can't possibly challenge it. Uh, but if, if you're a scientist with any kind of integrity, how can you not question it? hundred percent. I think it's probably a nice way to lead into our conversation about um maybe can we establish what the scientific method actually is 
and what it what it aims to achieve. Why do we have a thing called the scientific method? <laughs> What's its purpose? So I think the whole thing really is about how do we approach a problem with science. Science, going back to the, the derivation of the term science really is is about knowledge, right? It's, it's asking questions. Um, and so the scientific method kind of gives us a framework for how to approach that. And what you, what you do is, or the way it's supposed to work, you have some sort of a problem or a question or, you know, something you're trying to understand. And you, you first formulate a hypothesis. This is where Essentially, you're making an educated guess. You're, you're gathering available information that's already potentially known or unknown or, you know, something that's out there already. Maybe somebody else has a, has a theory or there's some previous work and you gather that. And from, from what you understand, you make the best guess and you say, well, I think, you know, that, that this is going to turn out this way. And then, of course, you need to have a way to to test that and prove it. So then you design an experiment and in theory, you would include all the appropriate controls and um, make sure that you're, you're testing everything necessary to, to adequately answer that question. Then you get that data, review that data and draw some conclusions from it. And, and ultimately the, that conclusion is, was the hypothesis validated or not? And if it's not, what you're supposed to do is go back and potentially adjust the hypothesis, taking into account what you discovered from that previous experiment or set of experiments, and then go through the whole thing again, design another experiment where you test the new hypothesis. And it should be an iterative process where you're constantly reevaluating things. And in some cases, you're not going to come to a point where you say, okay, we're done, right? Because there's a lot we don't know. And there's a lot, even if you've done a really thorough, rigorous evaluation, you know, you may just not be able to get uh, a clear answer all the time, but it, it, it basically, it should give you a, at least a framework by which if you follow it, which most people clearly don't, and I don't even know if it's taught anymore, but to be able to ask questions and evaluate them with some degree of certainty. So when you're making conclusions, you can say, is that, I mean, did, did the person even do an experiment that would even allow you to come up with that kind of a conclusion, right? And most of the time, those experiments haven't been done and i found this really interesting many years ago the british medical journal used to publish a report i guess you would call it every like three or five years and they went through and they gave a breakdown of everything in in medicine that was actually backed up by science and i think from memory it was like <laughs> 20% or 15% or something that was based on a hard scientific fact. We know this for certain and everything else is like, we don't really know, but the general public don't realize that. I think they think 
it's all based on hard scientific fact. And because they have that perspective, when there are people like myself or you or you or anyone for that matter, who comes out and challenges something, it's almost like heresy. It's like, how dare you challenge that? Because they themselves don't realize that those things have never been fully established. So we're in a bit of a pickle at the moment with the whole field of science, I think. I don't know. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think we've created a system that breeds dependency on on experts, right? And when you when you go down that road, um, then you have only one person or set of people to believe, and you get stuck in that to a point where anything counter to that, you kind of say, well. No, that that can't be right. Or, or you just you believe so much in what they're saying, and they're not clearly giving you the full picture. So, anything else, any other alternative, anything else behind the scenes, there, they're just not getting it. So when they're introduced to something like what you just said, like the majority of these findings are not even fully established, you know, they kind of go, oh, well, that's you know, that's ridiculous. But in reality, no, it's not because that's the truth. They've just not been told the full story. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, I think people like you and me and, and others that I know of, you know, are finally starting to shed some light on this. And so hopefully more people are coming, becoming aware and, I also hope that people will be empowered to take back that knowledge themselves and, and not depend so much on experts. There's a clear barrier, whether it's intentional or not, and you know you could go down that road, but um, largely it, it starts with respect to terminology, right? A lot of people I know that ask me stuff, they get hung up on terminology and what in the world does this mean or, you know, and in reality, we have a lot of crazy, ridiculous terms, almost you could say like a separate science language. But once you get past that, you realize it's just a bunch of crazy scientific jargon. Some scientists at some point decided to come up with some big terms for things that are quite simple processes or whatever. And once you get past that, you know, you can start to really make sense of almost anybody can start to make sense of this stuff and, and dig into it, but it becomes quite a barrier. And once you hit a point, I think anybody that's not really been exposed to it eventually runs into something where they just, oh, I don't know what the heck this means. And then what do you do? You pick, you go to your, you go to your expert, right? And then you just kind of get stuck in that and it gets hard to, um, to, to turn away from that. But I think if people can, um, you know, as they hear more of, more of these kind of alternative insights, if you will, be empowered to, to, to learn more. And hopefully um, people that are speaking out can maybe make it more approachable uh, in some ways so that it's a little bit easier to get over those barriers for people that are interested in digging deeper because anybody can, you don't have to have 
you know, a whole string of letters after your name. You don't have to um, have certain experience or whatever. I mean, and I say this as, again, someone who's been around scientists of all different kinds and shapes and sizes with all sorts of different pedigrees going to the fanciest, most prestigious schools you can imagine. And it, it, it really doesn't matter. I mean, what kind of degree they or whatever has had no direct correlation on how smart they are, or what, how good of a scientist they are. So, you know. What was your process of realizing that something was wrong, Mike? Like, have you known for a while or is this a recent thing for you? And was there a particular point in time you were like, oh, there's something wrong here. Like, can you walk me through your process of realizing that something was a bit of a miss? Yeah. So I think I've always been the kind of person that likes to ask a lot of questions, which was probably why I tended to be, to drift toward science. Um, even as a kid, I was the, was the kid that annoyed the heck out of everybody asking questions about things. So it was kind of a natural, uh, natural career path when you could actually ask questions. But, um, but even then, you know, I guess I didn't dig deeper until more recently, but, you know, just to give an example, I was the guy, one of my first, um, areas of research that I got into after my undergrad was an HIV lab um, where I worked for a top infectious disease doctor that that studied at the NIH under Dr. Fauci. And as I learned about HIV, uh, there was a lot of things that, that didn't sit right with me or I had, a, I had a lot of questions. So I started looking into it. And here I am working in that setting as a young scientist, and I'm looking into and searching why HIV might not cause AIDS and reading about people like Peter Duesberg, right? So I've always had this kind of inclination of, even though here I am with, in this setting, you know, I'm, it's not going to keep me from asking questions, but I never really dug that deep until a couple years ago. Um, and this was even before COVID when I actually lost my dad to pancreatic cancer in a month from him being diagnosed. And it just really opened my eyes when I saw how he was treated and everything. And as someone, I was in cancer research at the time. And it was one of these things where despite asking questions about a lot of things over the course of my career and seeing a lot of things, I hadn't had an eye-opening experience like that. And that really just caused me to go down and, and revisit a lot of what I, what I thought I knew. Um, and i and then the whole COVID thing really just kind of <laughs> took that into hyperdrive. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about, um, that whole cancer side of things. I remember years ago, we're probably going back five, six, seven years. I had a couple of mates who I'm not, I don't really speak to them anymore, but, um, they were, um, doctors and, specialists and i remember saying to them one night um i think they were over our place for dinner or something i remember saying to them you know isn't it interesting that in the course of the last like 40 or 50 years there's been basically no meaningful development 
in the treatment of cancer. And they said, what are you talking about, man? We've come up with heaps of new different forms of chemotherapy. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's exactly my point. It's that cancer is not a chemotherapy deficiency. And it doesn't seem like um, where cancer research is heading is ever really trying to get to the true underlying cause of the problem. Or maybe they are, maybe they, maybe they think that they're trying to get there, but it always seems to, to miss, miss the target. And we've got millions, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars um, being spent on cancer research every single year. And it never seems to get anywhere. And the rates of cancer keep increasing. And it's a really sort of perplexing thing when you think about it, that so much money and resources can be thrown into problem, yet so little um, success or advancements actually happening. I mean, it's mm -hmm. quite perplexing for me. Yeah, I think it's, it's perplexing until you start to think about what's actually going on. Um, you know, to, I guess to start, you have to kind of understand as much as we want to think about these companies, the, the, the biotech or pharmaceutical industry, about medicine in general, we want to think that it's there to help us, right? To help us when we're sick with something like cancer or whatever. But at the end of the day, what is biotechnology? It's profiting off of innovation, right? First word tells you everything you need to know, profit. That's, that's literally the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So as hard as it is to think about it, when you look at it as a business and it's about profit, you have to say, okay, then who's the consumer? Who's the customer, right? the patient, what is the last thing that you want when you're running a business to have, you want to have a, well, ideally you'd want to have return customers, but you don't have, want to have your market dry up. So, you know, you, and you want, you don't, you, you certainly don't want to, in, in this setting, you don't want to get everybody to be healthy because their your market dries up. So with cancer treatments, it's, well, most of them are insanely toxic. And if you talk to people, even up at the highest echelons of some companies and things, they swear by the fact that these treatments have to be that toxic to be effective, right? Which is just mind boggling because as you said, nobody is sick with anything, especially cancer, because they're deficient in a toxic chemotherapeutic agent, right? So right off the bat, I think anybody can see that. But I mean, I think the biggest problem is there's just, there's a lot of money in cancer. It's, it's, it's a machine almost. And so as much as you, the talk is about finding a cure, race to the cure, walk to the cure. Everything is, every foundation you see, everything is about finding a cure. That's the last possible thing that you want if you're in the industry, because then what do you Everyone's have? Everyone's out of a job. <laughs> right. <laughs> and most of the treatments that are available now, when you start to dig into them, whether you're looking at chemotherapeutics or 
anything, even some of the newer targeted treatments, when you really look at it, you find out they're only very marginally effective. I mean, I was looking at something the other day and it showed that on average, chemotherapies are, I don't know, somewhere around three to maybe, maybe five, probably not even as high as 5% um, effective in terms of survival. I mean, it's, it's abysmally low to the point where, you know, can you even consider that meaningful at all? I mean, at that rate and, and what's the trade-off, right? I mean, if you've ever known anybody, which a lot of people do that have gone through that, there's zero quality of life and, and the side effects. So I don't know why we continue to go down the, the route of the standard of care treatments, because as much as we, you hear about all these new treatments coming out, the targeted treatments, the immunotherapies, right? The big things, the checkpoint inhibitors and all these crazy new things that are supposed to, you know, drastically prolong survival. Although what happens is you have all these people getting really excited about, you know, a three to six month increase in overall survival or progression-free survival. There are these weird metrics that they evaluate. And you're like, if you're sick and you're, you know, you're like three months and the most miserable three months you can imagine, like that's not a victory for anybody. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's once you've been sort of behind the scenes of that, you've really dug into it. You see a different picture, even though, you know, I, I guess maybe not everybody sees it, but it's hard to ignore it. If, if, if you're really looking for it. Um, and another issue is, you know, with a lot of these drugs, being the fact that they're only marginally effective, you know, going in that they're going to fail and there's a lot of money to be made. So chemotherapy is, is almost always, even though we have all these new drugs, chemotherapies are almost always the first line standard of care. So that means when you're diagnosed, you go in, the doctor says, all right, we're going to put you on this insane chemotherapy regimen, right? Even if there might be other treatment options, targeted treatments, whatever, you can push that doctor as much as you want. They're going to, they're going to swear by, no, we got to put you on this first. Well, they get, a, they get a little bit of this right. for, for doing the chemo and they know, even if by some miracle, your tumor does happen to shrink, you're going to relapse and then they can put you on something else and then something, right. And there's that repeat customer. And then, so, uh, you know, it seems to me that there's just not a great interest in actually getting to the root cause of what's, why did the cancer even come about in the first place? Um, it's just, we got to, we got to treat it in almost like, uh, as if you're targeting, as if it's a military target and you're just trying to like, like, like the way you do with, you know, infectious diseases, like you, you have to just annihilate the thing. Forget about the human that's there in the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what you were saying before about that sort of three to five percent um, cure rate or efficacy rate. I remember reading years ago a paper 
published, I think, in one of the univer or from one of the universities or hospitals down in Melbourne, in Australia. And it, I think it was a systematic review. I mean, this is a long time that I read this paper, but it was very similar to that. It was like if you get the standard care, the, the surgery, the radiation, um, the chemotherapy, that type of thing, the overall benefit and likelihood of success is about 3%. And I thought, if your doctor told you that, right, and they also told you all the potential side effects and detrimental effects that that treatment would cause, I don't think anyone would take it, right? But they say, oh, you know, you have a, a really good chance of you going into remission and, and you being, um, you know, free from cancer. But they always change the goalpost because years ago it was if you didn't have cancer after five years, you were considered you know, cancer-free or in, in remission. And then I think they moved it to three years, right? And they and the, the figures show, oh, well, the cancer research and treatments must be working because now we're getting this massive percentage increase of people surviving from cancer. But all they did was redefine what a cancer survival was. It's just insane. Right, to me. right. Oh yeah, they definitely keep moving the ben the the benchmarks. That's that's for sure, um, because you just don't get any kind of meaningful long term effects out of most treatments. So if you pushed it out too far, you'd see the truth easily, right? Um, so they have to kind of think of ways to make it look like their treatments are working. And in fact, I mean, if you dig into how the clinical trials are designed and many of them have a lot of different um, inclusion or exclusion criteria to specifically put in certain, you know, you're almost trying to stack the deck in certain ways, depending mm. on which aspects, which phases of the trials you're looking at. Um, and then they build in a lot of different metrics, uh, outcome statistics, so that that way, when they're reading out the trial, they can pick and choose which ones look favorable or most favorable to them. Um, so it's just, I mean, even there, they're just playing around with numbers, trying to, trying to perpetuate, trying to tell a story that if you're a patient, you would never and you really knew that full story, you would never agree. I mean, most people I don't think would agree to that. But the problem is when you get a cancer diagnosis, they scare the heck out of you, right? It's fear. It's just like this whole situation we're going through now. So they use that fear and they tell you, in most cases, you have X amount of time to live, right? And then immediately you go into a state where you will accept whatever they tell you, but we can give you X, Y, Z, and then you'll, you should have a good chance to live however long and then whatever. And so people say, well, why would I want to take any other chance? And I think it's got to be the fear that then that kind of clouds your judgment from really understanding what else is what what those side effects are and things that you're exposing yourself to because you're so worried you're so fearful that you've just got you've just been handed this life sentence and that also goes to the fact that we're looking at experts to understand this stuff mm -hmm. if you were more knowledgeable in it you'd go in there 
with a whole list of questions, you'd be pushing back left and right and the doctor wouldn't know what hit him or her, right? But people just give in, which is understandable, but, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, people get scared because they hear the word cancer and they think it's a death sentence. But, I mean, there are studies out there. I remember one in particular that was done in breast cancer. It was like 500,000 women over a series of many years. And I think they found that, um, the women with breast cancer who did nothing after the initial screening within five years, a very high percentage of those actually had spontaneous regression and the cancer went away by itself. But the people who did anything additional to that initial screening, whether it be like a mammogram or a biopsy or some chemotherapy or whatever other intervention was offered to them, their survival rates were very low, right? So the people that did nothing were having this um, much higher level of survival. And it, and it sort of makes me think like when you go to the doctor and you've got cancer and they say, you've got six months, it's that self-fulfilling prophecy then of, oh, I've got six months to leave. So you will yourself to only live that six months. But they say, well, we can give you chemo and we can give you surgery or radiation or whatever else, um, whatever other therapy is available and we could extend that out to maybe 12, 18, maybe two years if you're lucky, right? <laughs> and I sort of think, how do you know that? How can you be so sure for that individual that, that you can give them a, a timeline of how long they've got to survive? So they tell you you've got six months and then they give you chemo and you live for two years and they say, see, the chemo did work. But what if you did nothing? What if you did nothing and you changed your diet and you did some exercise and some mindfulness and all these other alternative therapies and maybe you would live for five years maybe you'd live for 10 maybe it would go away by itself we just don't know i think it's it's really crazy to me how we can just take doctor's word saying you know you only got six months to live mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i think you're you're absolutely right it, it becomes almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way and i mean i'd be willing to bet more times than not that and, and I don't know what the, what the rationale would be, but I'm, I'm sure there's somebody that's got an explanation or a theory, but um, that more times than not, that patients probably wind up when the doctor, not, I don't think everybody asks, you know, how long do I have to live? But when, when they get that kind of what's the prognosis and it's, well, you've got 15 months or six months, you know, I'll bet more times than not. And, and I have some evidence of this, that they, literally do it winds up being pretty darn close mm. right and it's kind of shocking and and i don't you know i don't know exactly why but it, but there's got to be something psychological there that you know you you get yourself into some something that just you fulfill that but obviously the, what the treatment that you're doing and what you're subjecting yourself to doesn't help that and then you know, how many people are when they're, when they're going through all these treatments and none of them are, are simple or not incredibly harmful, regardless of what they are, whether it's surgery or, you know, some people think, oh, well, I, I'll do the surgery and maybe try to not have to do the chemo or as much. Surgery is still a huge thing. Um, and recovery from that is not, a, is not simple. I mean, radiation you know, the other thing is radiation and chemotherapy, both 
cause cancer, right? <laughs> Majority of chemotherapies and cancer treatments, if you look, if you go on, if you go and search or you go on the, um, the company's website or whatever, and you go and you look under, maybe it's not under the patient information, but if you go under look where it says for healthcare providers, and you look at all the side effects and stuff, a lot of them, you'll see, it, it says that there's a risk for different kinds of cancers as a side effect, as a adverse effect of them. And it makes sense when you, when you look at how they work or how they're supposed to work, I guess. I don't know whether they actually work that way because we don't really know in most cases how most drugs work, which is another kind of surprising thing for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, another thing is that it turns out most doctors, most oncologists, when you ask them, they won't even, if it was them or their family member, they would not treat them the same way. They wouldn't mm -hmm. take the chemotherapy. They wouldn't take them. So that gives you some perspective too into to what's going on there. Yeah. And when we were talking about that self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, where you make or you believe that you've only got six months to live because the man in the white coat told you so. I, I may be wrong about this, but I've heard this from multiple sources and I've read this a few times that in Japan, they delay or they um, try not to give a person with cancer the diagnosis of cancer because they found that they live a lot longer. Right? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that yeah. kind of, yeah. which, which is really, really cool. I think um, if that actually happens and I've heard mm -hmm. this from many different, as I said, many different people over many years, that that is the case where they, they tried to um, delay that diagnosis. Right. Um, and, you know, if I just think back to my grandmother who died of lung cancer, She was not feeling well for many years and was getting all sorts of investigations and scans and x-rays and ultrasounds, and biopsies and blood tests and you name it. And they could never find anything. Um, and she was coughing up a little bit of blood. And then one day, but she was relatively otherwise healthy. Like you look at her and she was going out and playing lawn bowls and going to the RSL and having dinner with her friends and, you know, going on holidays and all this sorts of stuff, living a, a pretty good life. Mm -hmm. And then one day they, they did some more scans and they said, oh, we found all these um, spots through your lungs. You've got lung cancer. So we have to put you on chemotherapy. And within a very short amount of time, she went from being this beautiful, healthy woman to a shell or a husk of a human being she was emaciated. She was thin. She, I mean, it, it basically within, yeah, within six months, she was nothing to what she was, but it was obvious and apparent that she'd had this cancer for many, many years prior to that. And I know I've always wondered like how long would she have lived and would her quality of life been better if she never would have got that treatment in the first place? But you know, that's, mm -hmm. it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's, it's a question I certainly ask about people that I know and like my dad that, that have had the, that have had cancer and took the treatment and obviously didn't work out. Um, I mean, the treatments, 
like I said, they're, they're so toxic. I mean, I, and I don't know how many people, when you're in that state and you've been given that diagnosis and you kind of give yourself over to the, to the man in the white coat, so to speak, how many people are doing anything else aside from taking whatever treatments they're telling you to take hmm. to, to augment their, their health and to try to improve whether or not they're going after what might be an underlying cause or something, going, but just anything to try to improve their health. I mean, so it, you know, I, I wonder how many people just kind of fall into just a state of almost giving up. I mean, because you see that so much where, and I've heard it from so many people where they seemingly are fine, not fine, but you know, they, you wouldn't know that there was something significant wrong with them, right? Like you're saying about your grandmother, um, certainly was the case with my dad. And then next thing you know, they get this diagnosis, start treatment, and all of a sudden it just hits you like a freight train and that they're this completely different person that's got almost no life left in them right mm. like you're saying i know a lot of a lot of that has to do with some of the treatments because they're i mean they're just so brutal but there's there's got to be a a psychological element to that too and probably a number of different things that that go into it and yeah like you said i wonder if people were to take a different approach delay treatment um focus on what might've caused them to, to wind up in that, that state to begin with, if they wouldn't at least deteriorate so rapidly, um, you know, be able to sustain some level of, of health for a longer period of time. I mean, there's definitely evidence that of, like you said, of spontaneous revision, uh, sorry, <laughs> spontaneous, uh, uh, regression, regression. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and I, you know, if that number is anything higher than that really abysmal number of what the effectiveness of the treatments are, I, I don't know. I mean, how do you not start to look into some of these other things? And it's, it's not like, I mean, you get kind of pushed to, we got to start you on treatment right away. I mean, Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving medical advice. Don't trust the word I say. Do your own research. But, you know, what, I mean, unless you're literally in a situation where it's critical and, it, and you're in a life-threatening situation, you know, I I'm intrigued by that, that Japanese study. I mean, if, if taking a little bit of time and not doing something and seeing what happens can can make that big of a difference that would be interesting do you have any thoughts on what might cause cancer or is that anything you looked into with your research or do you have any colleagues that were looking into that yeah well unfortunately when you're in the industry most of what you're doing is just trying to find ways to target what you think is cancer right nobody's really looking investigating what might cause it or what uh, underlying factors, um, could put someone in a, in a state that's, 
where they're more susceptible to it with the exception of all of the, the genetic stuff, right? Things, things like um, different mutations and things like, like uh, the BRCA mutation, the BCRA one with, with respect to breast cancer, where, you know, that's always assumed that, oh, it just jacks up your risk, even though when you actually look at the data, it's, it's, that's not the case at all. Um, and, and it turns out the percentage of women with breast cancer that have that mutation is actually quite small anyway. So they scare you with these things that have no meaning in reality. And then you're not able to actually look into what might be real reasons. Um, and of course, what you're told, you know, it largely stems from a genetic standpoint, right? This whole idea of oncogenes and um, mutations, tumor suppressor genes. So it's either an oncogene, this is something that is a, a driver of cell growth, starts out as a proto-oncogene, and then it's mutated. And then that allows the cell to go into some sort of un uncontrolled cell growth, and then you have a tumor, right? Or some, something else on the opposite side that's <clears throat> been called a tumor suppressor. So under normal conditions, it would suppress the growth of a tumor. And when it's mutated, it's like taking the brakes off, right? So that's kind of their whole, through series of mutations, either one of those kinds of groups of genes that takes the brakes off of things or accelerates things. And then you get uncontrolled growth right. and then you get a tumor. And um, usually, you know, then they come up with this thing of where it's like this stepwise process of, a, of an accumulation of these different genes, uh, uh, mutations that leads to tumor formation in various stages and things. I think that was something else that's just never really sat well with me as I've really looked at the biology and, and what's going on in a tumor. One of the, one of the more interesting things that I came across was the idea that in a tumor, so I think most people would think, and especially when you think about how they're treated, you know, we've got to target the, the cancer cells, right? We've got to kill them. Well, in most tumors, you have something that's called a tumor microenvironment. So this is the whole little environment of the, of the tumor. It's everything that's going on in there, the cancer cells and any other kind of immune cell or anything else that's, that's there having some role. You would probably think if you ask people that, what is a tumor? It's a ball of cancer cells. That used to be the original notion. It's become understood more recently that a tumor has all these other different cell types and cancer cells in a lot of different tumor types are the minority cell type. And in some of them, very small, there's, there's certain blood cancers where the cancer cells are only about 1% of the tumor cells. Wow, or I, did not, tumor, I did not know right? that. Tumor cells. So tumor cells and cancer cells, the cancer cells are the ones that we might think of the rapidly growing cells, right? A tumor cell, you know, is the tumor is the whole growth of, of everything. And it's, it's quite amazing that you're, you're talking about targeting these cancer cells but in reality, not only is that not the only thing that's there, in a lot of cases, 
it's the smallest thing, smallest percentage of what's there, or at least it's not the majority, or maybe it's 50-50, but there's a lot more that's going on there. And when you look at what is going on in, the, in these tumors, to me, it looks a lot like a wound, uh, a wound healing process, a, a healing process. <laughs> Very interesting. I keep coming wow. back to this and I, I haven't been able to completely wrap my head around it, but it's, and it's something that, you know, a number of people have remarked about, but then they always are sure to say, it looks like wound healing, but it's not right. And, but I'm like, if it, you know, if it smells like it and it looks like it and it tastes like, you know, maybe it is a healing, you know, maybe we're just looking at it from the complete wrong way. And when we think of mutations or whatever's going on in there, we're told that this is what pre, um, that comes before the tumor, right? That leads to the tumor. Well, what if a lot of those things actually come as a result of the tumor? I'm and so the glad tumor you said that. Is, is actually doing something else altogether. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that point up because it's fairly in line with my perspective of what cancer is. I don't ever think the body does anything wrong. The body's always trying to get back to balance and heal itself. And we see this cancer is, oh my God, it's the bad thing. But in fact, it's the body trying to mop up a God awful mess. And we come along and we see this growth there and we go, oh, that's the problem. When in fact, that's the solution to the problem. And then we come along and poison it and cut it and interfere with the process. So yeah, yeah. So you're saying that cancer may actually be a, a, like a wound healing process, a healing process. A healing, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research out there that is that has described that, and a lot of the the characteristics of the things that are going on in the tumor microenvironment are processes that are very consistent when you look at wound healing. They're very similar, if not the exactly the same. And so you, you could say, almost, why is that? You could almost, and this is a sort of along my train of thought, you could almost, instead of looking at cancer as the thing we need to destroy as the enemy, we should look at it as the thing that's trying to help us. And maybe we should do some research into looking at how do we support that process to help the body move through that transition through it and come out the other side stronger and, and better and healthier. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting sort of train of thought, Mike. I'm really glad you brought that up. Well, yeah, it's just something I came across in, in looking in, in doing my own research, you know, because I wasn't very comfortable with the, the kind of mainstream view, what you're told, what you're, what, I was exposed to both in the work that I did in industry, but also in my grad school studies, same thing. You're kind of barraged with this, with the same kind of story and said, this just doesn't sit right. Especially when you look at other things, you know, what's really going on there. I don't know. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but it's just something that I observed and I thought it was an interesting observation. 
So, you know, earlier how you said, um, we don't really know how drugs work. And I, this is something that I've been aware of for a long time myself. We don't really understand it. So how is it that they can turn around and say, well, this is the reason why we're doing all these interventions if they don't even know how it works? I mean, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> right, right. Well, they've got to have some way to market their drugs, right? So you have to be able to say, well, this is a beta blocker and it's for treatment of, you know, uh, what are they blood pressure or, or asthma? Is that what they're, I forget now. Um, but whatever, you know, different, this drug targets this and it's for the, you know, if you told the truth that in, in fact, and I don't know how well it's known now, but back years ago when I was in, when I was in pharma, I mean, it was pretty well known that the great majority of approved drugs, there was no known mechanism of action for them. So we knew from the preclinical, the in vitro testing, that's where you're doing things in a dish, in a tube with cultured cells or with purified uh, protein or whatever, that this drug is very likely to interact with this target, this receptor or whatever. But it's such a contrived, isolated situation, right? The modeling is so bad because it's so far from what's happening in an intact human. Mm -hmm. You know, and once you start to look and ask the question of what else is this thing interacting with, you start to see that it's, I mean, many drugs are, the word this uses, promiscuous. And many drugs and certain classes of drugs are very promiscuous. That means they hit a lot of different things, which is not surprising, but we're led to believe that there's this great deal of specificity that we can actually generate, create targeted drugs. And then of course we say, we hone in and we talk about the supposed effect of that direct targeting as the therapeutic effect. And anything else is that's an unintended effect is a side effect, but is it really? I think they're all just effects. It's just kind of how they're classified because if a given drug is hitting a whole bunch of different things and then also having, you know, as drugs are broken down, metabolized, even the metabolites can have activities and the other confounding factor is how many people do you know that are taking pharmaceutical drugs that are only on one drug, right? So once you start, many people, at least in the U.S., are on multiple, multiple drugs. They all then can interact with each other. They can have um, almost combination effects working with each other to synergize or have an, like an additive effect and compound those different off-target effects, I mean, it, it almost becomes impossible to say that you're, you're hitting something specifically, but you have to be able to come up with a story, right, to, to market it and sell your drug. You wouldn't want to tell somebody, well, I'm giving you this for, you know, cholesterol or blood pressure or whatever kind of new crazy illness, you know, has been cooked up that, this drug really 
doesn't, you know, it, it, it's going to hit everything. And it's because <laughs> why would you take it? You know? Yeah. And I guess it's, it's that they're not those effects that the drugs have. One substance may have 10 different effects. They're all direct effects, but they say, well, we're just going to choose this effect and market it for that. And then we'll take that same substance and then we'll market a different effect and we'll call it a different name for it market as a different drug. So it's still the same substance that they're using, but they're calling it a different drug because it's got different direct effects. But when you look, when you focus on the different individual direct effect, you just start calling all the other things a side effects, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not yeah, like exactly. they're not always developing new drugs for new conditions. Sometimes they're just using old drugs that they know have side effects. Like one thing might be used for, um, I don't know, an example might be used for um, like erectile dysfunction, but they mm-hmm. find that it also has a um, antidepressant effect. So they'll well, use that mm-hmm. as an antidepressant and market it for that reason. And then they'll also use the same substance and then market it as a totally different drug for erectile dysfunction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a, I mean, it's a funny example, but it's actually a good example because the most well-known of those drugs was actually initially looked at for a completely different indication. And then as just like a side thing, they found out that it helped that as well. And then they said, oh, well, we'll just market it for that. And then, I mean, but a lot of drugs um, are looked at and either relabeled or they add on later on different indications or in a lot of indicate in a lot of situations, depending on what disease or whatever, the, Drugs can be used off target too, even though, you know, sometimes we're told, well, that, that can't, you know, you only can use these drugs for this thing. You know, that's not always what happens either. Um, and also let's say you're, when you're doing drug discovery, you know, you start out with these massive libraries of thousands of drug compounds and you screen through, it's kind of like this funnel approach where you're, where you're whittling down, you have all these different screening assays and tools that you deploy to try to narrow things down to find what you call hit that you can then move on to clinical development if if you're lucky to have it not have a significant amount of toxicity issues but many things do fall out for reasons of they just can't make them specific enough or they have too many red flags toxicity issues but then they go back into that library and depending on it always depends on the risk benefit different thing right because when you have something like cancer well the bent you know you're willing to risk more on the tox side so something maybe a a drug maybe that fell through or fell off was flagged by tox for something that you know you you wouldn't have taken that much of a risk on tox with cancer more stuff will get through right because oh well it's worth the risk because it's cancer Mm. So you have stuff like that. Um, Mike, another thing I was, I was going to ask you just while it's on the top of my mind is how on earth can we be doing studies like you mentioned before in Petri dishes and all this sort of stuff 
um, in vitro and adding substances in an environment that is so far removed from what really happens in the human body and then just assume that what we see in a Petri dish is what's actually going on in the human body because we've never really been able to look inside living tissue and watch things happening in real time, have we? No, I mean, and I would assume for many reasons of morality and ethics that would not go over well with most people to be yeah. monitoring in that sort of, sort of situation. So that's why we're stuck uh, with the models that we use. But they're, in many cases, they're so contrived and they're so out of line with what would happen in an intact living human that, I mean, I've asked that question so many times over my career is how do you possibly believe you know, to fellow scientists, how do you possibly believe that you can equate this to anything meaningful or translate it when you're, when you're looking at to make meaning? Because you're always looking at these in vitro assays, even the in vivo stuff and, you know, mouse models and stuff. And you're trying to come up with some way that you can translate it, that you can say this is going to predict something in a human. And it, of course, it almost never happens. It never, it never predicts out that way. But I don't know how many times I've said, why do, you, why do you think you can use this to predict something? I mean, why would you ever think that this has any ability to predict what's going to happen? Hmm. But it just is that way. And so people just, you know, and one of the reasons I'll shed a little light on this is because you're going for what is required from a regulatory standpoint to get approval for a clinical trial. So people and companies, you literally do things that you know, you know, you have a list of things that are required for your regulatory documentations that you have to submit to the FDA or to the European version of the FDA, the, the MH, uh, what is it called? I forget now, but um, to get that approval, to go into the clinical trials. And there are certain kinds of um, in vitro and in vivo preclinical studies that are, that are required for most submissions. It's called an IND, Investigational New Drug Submission. And so it's kind of like just checking the box, right, for that, because you know what you need, you know what they're going to be looking for to get a, approval to clear that hurdle to start doing clinical trials and that's your goal to get into humans. And so you just, even though, you know, you're like, this is not going to predict anything. You just kind of go down the list and check the boxes and it's wild. And so I, I, I don't know how many times I've, I've asked that question or been like, this is, you know, with different assays, different models and things. And you're like, this is nuts. What are we doing? <laughs> but they go, yeah. well, we're, you know, this is what the investors want. This is what the, you know, okay. I mean, is there a way that you see uh, that we can somehow clear up some of this, this nonsense and the way that we're doing science and the mistakes that are being made over and over and over again? I mean, it just, to me, I don't even like reading scientific papers anymore because I look at this stuff and I go, it is absolutely nonsense and it's absolutely meaningless because we can't equate it 
to what's really going on inside a human body. I mean, how do we even begin to fix some of these problems? Well, the first thing I would say is maybe stop reading scientific papers because I don't know if you've heard, but <laughs> there, there were some studies a few years ago. It actually started with, with um, a paper that, that a guy put out um, from Stanford Med School uh, questioning, I think the title was like, our most published data, most published studies false or something like that. Oh, by Professor um, John Juanides. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. And then, um, so a lot of big companies, when they're looking for new targets, and even small companies, I guess I should say, as I, as I did, but um, you go back and you look at published studies from academia or whatever, and one of the first things you do is try to re reproduce those. And so a lot of these companies were spending tremendous amounts of money and wasting it because they were finding that you couldn't reproduce so much published data. And a couple big companies and labs decided, well, let's, let's actually do a formal study and actually put a number to this because they didn't, they weren't sure just how prevalent an issue it was. And, you know, one of the kind of hypotheses was, did it, that maybe didn't have to do with, or, or it had to do with the impact factor of the, the, the magnitude of the journal that it was published in, right? So if it was in science or nature, it would be more reproducible than if it was in, you know, some lower level journal. Hmm. So these, these, these labs, there were two companies and an independent lab, and this was all kind of in the oncology space. And they took a set of published studies and tried to repeat them rigor, you know, and they tried to repeat them exactly as they were done, really rigorous. And then they even tried in some cases to, to do some tweaks based on their own internal understanding of things. And there was some incredibly high number, 80 to 90% in some cases that they couldn't reproduce. And it was astounding, but it, it lined up exactly with what I've seen my entire career because it's a practice that I've always, whenever I come up with a new idea and it's based on looking at some published data or whatever, first thing I always did was, well, I got to make sure this is reproducible, that this is real, right? I mean, and, I, and I'm not saying everybody does, does that because they don't, but, um, but I can't tell you how many times I would try to do the same thing, reproduce somebody's published work, doesn't work. And that's the whole point of publishing science is that you should be, it should be up to be challenged by other scientists. And part of that is reproducing it, right? And if you can't reproduce it, I mean, doesn't that not call into question the conclusions you're making, the, what you're, you know, the claims you're making about that, that finding that set of data, whatever it is you're, you're, you're publishing for. Um, and it's, you know, it's pretty well known actually among scientists that this is an issue. The problem is they don't see why that lack of reproducibility makes it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like what? <laughs> but it, yet it is this huge problem. And it's an even bigger problem when you, when you factor in every single published paper, right? You have all of those citations that kind of underpin the paper that give it meaning, give it background, 
Mm. Says, why aren't we doing this? It gives it the relevance. It gives it, and then when you talk about your findings, it provides the, the, why is this important? What can we do with this? So all those, and you always have all these different citations that provide that, that kind of underpin the paper, the importance. If you didn't have those, or if they were proven mostly invalid, it would, you know, it might make your paper irrelevant or, or, you know, it, there would be no significance to this work that you're publishing. Well, if most of the published data, which are all of these citations that people are putting, you know, so the paper itself you're reading, good chance maybe that's not reproducible. And then maybe most of the papers that they're citing for the rationale for their doing that work are also not reproducible. Well, you've got a house of cards, right? Mm. And then when you look at the fact that, you know, in, in something like cancer or virology or something, they're using these papers to drive design of clinical trials and things. So it's not even just that, oh, well, you know, it was wrong. And so what, who cares? They're actually, it's, it's being used to design something to put these drugs into people, right? So there is a, there is an implication of that that work not being valid it's not just oh they got it wrong i mean it's it's quite astounding in in a lot of ways do you think we need to move to like back to that natural science model something that's observable testable repeatable with your own two eyes yeah Mm -hmm. not the stuff where we're manipulating tissue and we're extracting it from its natural environment and pouring chemicals on and exposing it to all sorts of non-natural conditions um moving back towards that real natural science of trying to prove and disprove uh natural phenomena like would that be a way around some of these issues yeah yeah so i think there's two things there the the first thing is (laughs) You're absolutely right when you talk about the 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 methodologies, the the procedures that are employed to to evaluate a lot of these things and experimental conditions and things. The way in which you take the cells or the tissue or whatever and you just pummel it almost. You do the 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 manipulations that are made in some cases are astounding, and then. You go and you read it out in some way where you're looking at a surrogate marker or some sort of fluorescent, you know, antibody or something that's, and then you're saying, aha, this means X. Well, how do you possibly know when you've beaten the heck out of your sample or you've subjected it to whatever different conditions, whether it's centrifugation or fixation, or, I mean, almost every kind of experimental protocol any kind of manipulation you're doing even if it isn't the initial experimental conditions that you're subjecting the the cells or whatever to you always almost have to do something to to read it out to be able to measure that effect and that process almost always involves further manipulation of the material the samples and the, the problem is everybody just assumes that those procedures have no impact. So you never take into account 
the effects of those procedures and rule out that they aren't having a significant effect on the outcome. But you know that they can. Yes. And I've seen it because I've, again, I'm a pain in the butt. I, I like to just go off on my own and manipulate different conditions and see what happens. And I mean, it, it's, it's not hard to start thinking about the impacts that these things could have. And there are people that have more formally questioned it than even, than even I'm saying. And, um, but, you know, of course, when you start bringing that stuff up, that's, you know, you definitely get some significant pushback there. I guess um, when I read these papers and you read through the methodology, say it's like a rat study and they might take some tissue from a rat and put the tissue in a Petri dish and add this chemical and expose it to centrifugation and this temperature and whatever else they're doing. My sort of perspective on that is all we can deduce from that study is when you take some tissue from a rat and you do those things to the tissue, this happens and you can't deduce anything else from it. If you do, you just, it's just speculation. It's, it's anti-science or anti-scientific. But what seems to happen these days is that they do that and they go, and then we're just going to say that this is probably how it happens in the human body. And there we go. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, exactly. Oh yeah, I've I've seen it done, especially in the in the arena of, of cancer research. You use a lot of mouse models, right, for these for these tumors to look and say, you know, is your drug or whatever, you know, impacting tumor growth? And it's incredibly contrived. I mean, you're starting off with a mouse that's highly inbred and in many cases um, immuno immunocompromised. Obviously, humans aren't mice. Most aren't inbred to the best of my knowledge and mo most well although i guess the immunocompromised part if if you get nailed with most chemotherapies you're going to be immunocompromised so maybe that's not but um but it's certainly not replicating in any way shape or form you know an, an intact human and then and and then it's, and then how you're generating the tumor isn't isn't at all replicating that process but even if you did see something, right, in, you're, you're injecting your antibody, your treatment, you're looking at the tumor size, whatever, let's say you see something while it's alive, well, then, the, you know, they always want to make meaning out of going dig deeper and look at, well, what, if you did see an effect, what's the mechanism, right? So then, like you said, you take, you kill the, well, you sacrifice the animal, I shouldn't say kill, you got to be humane about it. You sacrifice the animal and you take the tissue, like you were saying, and then you manipulate the heck you know you do all sorts of crazy things in many cases they take it and well let break it up <laughs> i'll spare you the gory details but um and fortunately i i most of my experience is on the in vitro side i i haven't been heavily exposed to the animals for better or worse but but i know what's done and they take the sample and manipulate it and break it up and then do a lot of the same crazy stuff that they, they do with the cells and then say, ah, that's what happened. But once you kill the mouse, you've already changed <laughs> a lot of things. And then you take the tissue out and you manipulate the heck out of it. How can you possibly state that that's what was happening when that mouse was alive and on study? Not to mention, there's more and more people 
that are now saying that these mouse models that we use don't have any bearing themselves as to predict or you know what's happening in the human which i mean of course but then when you try to then make further meaning out of it and you take it and mash up the the dead tissue and say oh look this is what's going on i mean it it's i, I don't know I, I i don't know how you get to that point but i but it's i guess it's just <laughs> it's almost you believe without questioning, right? That you're doing something. And when you start to think about it, I don't know how you can't see the, that it's, it's not really telling you anything with a great deal of meaning. Precisely. And, you know, you just said that word, belief, belief. How does the word science or the scientific method and the word belief or believe even how can you have those two words in the same sentence? I mean, it's just insane to me where science is these days. Um, and as you said, like you start questioning this stuff and you get so much pushback and you get raked over the coals um, because you call this, this nonsense out for what it really is. And I know, I understand that we're trying to do the best that we can, but I think we've taken it a bit too far here. Um, and even when you start looking at like pharmacology and, and medicine and the way that we try to understand the human body, it's never done in a living real life human being. It's either done, done on dead or dying tissue or a cadaver or, you know, it, it can never tell us what's really going on. Um, and this is the fundamental issue that I have with all this scientism i call it these days um so yeah this is sort of why i I was wondering you know how do we how do we really get around this um but that's why i like reading a lot of the very old um scientific journals like the ones in the early 1900s because they were doing natural science and a lot of those findings are where the, the foundations um, and the majority of our understanding of what is happening with the human body comes from to this day. Like a lot of this modern day research isn't really advancing our knowledge that greatly. No, no, I, I agree. There's a lot of really interesting insight that you can get from looking at that, that old work. You know, if, if you can, if you can actually find the, the original papers and things, which in a lot of cases you can. Um, but as we've, and certainly nowadays, I mean, everything is so focused on um, kind of a micro level understanding, looking, you know, a, a molecular mechanism, you know, breaking it down into these small bits. And, and it's probably the part of it is this overwhelming almost obsession with with things like genomics. Right. Um where you're just looking at a level that, I mean, when you think about a human, we're not machines, but when you look at a lot of the late latest research, it's like you're breaking, you're breaking it down. Like, like it is like you're looking at a machine when you're right. When you look at the older stuff, it was more on a, on a, on a macro level where you're, where you're looking at the, kind of the whole human. And I think that, 
in a lot of ways makes a lot more sense because nothing has significance by itself. You know that there's a lot of interplay, tons of interplay, right? I mean, so how can you think you can drill down to some singular mechanism or some singular gene or whatever and make meaning out of that without taking everything else into consideration? This has been a really interesting discussion. I feel like we're only even just scratching the surface. Um, but I'm going to ask you one last question and then I'm going to let you go and enjoy the rest of your Friday evening with your family. Thank you. <laughs> what is the difference between science and technology? Because I think a lot of people confuse technology mm. with science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, well, nowadays it's probably easy to confuse science with technology. Um, I think a lot of people probably also can, when they think of science, they think of medical science too, right? I mean, science is so much more than that. It's should be the study of all things and all, all processes and all, not just one specific area, which when now, especially the last two years, you think you say science and you think medicine, right? Or maybe even more narrower than that. Um, technology, yeah, I can see where that would easily get kind of intertwined with that too, because there's such a, an emphasis now on technology. And I, I don't know how that... Well, I guess I, I mean, you can see how that got to be that way, but um, it certainly is not the same thing. I, when, I, I, can I give you an example? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Maybe I. No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Like, I think, you're on, <laughs> I think you're answering my question, but like when we're sitting here postulating these, these theories or putting forward these ideas, people will call, will say to us, well, if you don't believe in the scientific method, then you're not believing in the computer that you guys are sitting on watching Zoom, um, talking over Zoom right now, if you don't believe in science, because mm. somehow they equate the scientific method to the fact that we can sit here with a, a, a computer um, and talk over the internet, right? So they're two very different things. Um, mm -hmm. Like people are confusing technology and the scientific method. Um, and I think you can call out the fact that the scientific method has been lost and still be able to um, use technology. But if we're not careful, I think if we don't question the scientific method and we just rely on this technology, like, like these tests and things that they're doing these days for this, this pan, during this pandemic, that's like technology. To me, that's not really science because they've never proven actually what any of these tests are really testing for. But it's like, we'll just trust the science, trust the tests, trust the technology, and don't question any of the underlying principles or um, scientific processes that were used to develop that technology, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. So the presumption, the belief, I guess, would be that the technology is the result of the latest breakthroughs in science, right? But clearly 
that doesn't that's not necessarily the case and it's certainly not science um i mean i think you can absolutely question things and still concede the the utility of technology i don't, I don't think the two have to be intertwined hmm. yeah it's um a very interesting time that we're living in and as we were sort of speaking about this before we started the discussion today i think it's important that we're able to have conversations like this openly and honestly without ridicule or ad hominem attacks um, because what we're doing is a part of the scientific method i think a lot of even just that philosophical discussion is where uh, that scientific method begins this is where you formulate new ideas and hypotheses and then you can go and test those new things but if people listen to us talking today and go these guys are science deniers they're crazy they don't know what they're talking about they're actually the ones being anti-scientific <laughs> not us <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we're actually being scientific right now right i mean this is this is really what it should be it should be an an open, honest discussion. And then that's how you then formulate hypotheses based off of an open debate where you're able to question things, right? And say, oh, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we did this, or I wonder really what does cause this or what, you know, instead of just believe the science, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just believe, believe the science, the science is settled. Look, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on today and speaking with me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I I like getting into um, these topics uh, and trying to just unravel all of the things or unlearn a lot of the things that I've been taught over the years as fact that actually may not be necessarily fact or aspects of it are not necessarily as true as I've been um, told to believe. And I appreciate yourself and, and people like yourself having the guts to come out and do this because as we were saying um, before we started recording if we don't have these conversations now and if we don't start challenging the consensus and challenging the reasons why we're doing certain things um, and trying to make this world a better place and really trying to get to the truth humanity's in some serious trouble so keep doing what you're doing keep speaking out speak your truth and hopefully more people like yourself will follow suit and i know that there are a lot of other people doing that now so good on you well done yeah yeah well thank thank you so much i'm i'm truly grateful for the opportunity to to be able to speak out and hopefully shed some light on on the truth of the the current state of science um hopefully it's you know it's been a great discussion um and i hope it's been a valuable one for for your audience and um yeah i mean i'm always trying to encourage more people to 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 stand up and and speak out there there's a growing body of us um that are, that are doing so. Um, in fact, I started a, a group recently um, on Telegram called Scientists for Health Freedom. Really not for me at all, just to give scientists a place to connect 
um, and and hopefully and support each other and and get more people to speak out because the more that are willing to stand up and and speak out, I think the more I almost hate to say, but credibility it gives when you're asking these kinds of questions, right? You know, then the people that would maybe be so quick to say, oh, well, you're a science denier, you're nuts. Well, if more and more and more people are saying the same thing, and these are people that are scientists and have been seeing and doing these things, it becomes harder to not at least say, well, maybe they're onto something. Mm. So if you're thinking about it, please speak out. There's, there's plenty of support if you're kind of concerned about it or you're apprehensive. Uh, you know, I, I hope we can get more because because we need we need to keep having these discussions. And I'm really grateful that you started that group. Um, and that's it's if people are listening to this and they are a scientist and they want to have some of these discussions and learn more and and open their minds or maybe their minds are already open and they just need people to talk to. Um, yeah, I would definitely recommend they go and check out that Telegram site because I was really surprised actually how many scientists are actually on that channel. Um, mm-hmm. Some really qualified, experienced people who are talking about things that I never in my wildest dreams ever would have thought they'd be talking about. And it's just so wonderful. So thank you for doing that, Mike. It's, it's really great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's not, it's not for me. And as evidence, we now have, we had two more scientists that have joined recently that have done similar interviews and have spoken out recently. And one of them is a, is a scientist in academia and one of them uh, came from uh, big pharma. So, Mm. I mean, just gives you some insight. Yeah. We've got to get the truth out to to humanity. Mm right? Because if we don't get to the bottom of this now, the future's looking pretty bleak, but um, this is the great awakening. I, I believe that's what we're going through. And the things that are be, uh, happening now and the things that we're talking about um, is paving the way for the future, for our children, our children's children. So yes, it's a little bit uncomfortable and hard sometimes to speak out about these things, but if we don't do it, um, the alternative is going to be a lot harder. Absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is so much bigger than, than all of us. I mean, I, I have young kids. Um, I'm not, especially being that I'm now in a better position now that I'm on the outside and I kind of feel like I've been freed to speak out in a way, you know, if, if not me, who else, if not when, if not now, when, I mean, I, you know, we didn't maybe ask for this battle to be brought on us, but it's here now and we need, we need to, we need to fight this with all we have. I couldn't end it better myself, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> Wise <laughs> words. I appreciate it. Look, Absolutely. I will um, post up in the show notes, the telegram uh, page, if that's okay. If people want to come along and join up to the group that would be great okay yeah fantastic thanks so much mike and you know i'd like there's so many other things that i want to talk to you about actually uh but the time's just flown by like i Mm -hmm. literally looked down and it's like wow we (laughs) had a great discussion (laughs) so 
I won't take any more of your time, but definitely keen to touch base again in the near future because there's some other topics that I'd really like to speak to you about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, please stay in touch. Great. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a great night. Yeah, thank you. You too. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.